I began day before yesterday with some stories of the Theravada nuns, the nuns in the time of the Buddha. Buddhism traveled from India to China around 100 to 200 AD, which would be 500 years after the time the Buddha lived. And when it arrived in China, it was a time of great upheaval. The latter Han Dynasty was collapsing, and then and there were many rebellions. There were rivals fighting for the throne. There were nomadic tribes riding down from the north and invading and causing great destruction, destroying farms where most people lived. Families were separated. There were thousands and thousands of refugees. Might sound familiar. Famine and disease were widespread. And there was general social and political chaos. Eventually, northern China was lost to barbarians, and many Chinese had to flee to the south of China. And the country was then divided into many small states. Sounds a bit familiar. Hmm? We have many states that seem not to be able to unite, cooperate. We have rivals for political power and so on. Fear of invasion, fear of invasion by immigrants, fear of invasion by terrorists. The indigenous religions were Confucianism and Taoism. And when Buddhism came in, there was a fair amount of resistance, understandably on the part of those who believed the original Chinese religions. Now China has accepted uh, Chan, Zen, what we know as Zen. Uh, Chan, even during the communist era, we were told when we did a trip to China that Chan was always accepted in China as a native religion. Interesting. So it wasn't persecuted. Uh, under the communist rule as much. So many of the things that Buddhism taught were very different from what Taoism and Confucianism taught. So there was uh, some clash. But in the midst of all of this chaos, Buddhist missionaries continued to flow into the country making a very difficult journey across the desert. Their way was marked by skeletons because the desert was such a fierce environment and sandstorms could come up and completely engulf the caravan within a matter of minutes, bury them completely in sand. So there's a whole history behind women as teachers in China or as ordained nuns in China. In India, there was a very strong belief that women could not be 
enlightened unless they became a man, unless they were reborn as a man. And there are many recorded prayers of women asking to be reborn as a man. And there's a statue actually in Japan that was commissioned by by nuns who were of the Fujiwara family. So they were of the aristocratic ruling family and commissioned this statue. And inside, when it was being restored, they found scrolls which included prayers that these nuns be reborn as men. And then that Indian prejudice met Confucian ideas that the role of women in Confucian society was to stay home, to get married early, often in teenage years, to take care of your parents, or when you moved into your in-laws' home, to take care of them until they died, and to bear sons so that you and your children and their children's children and so on could honor the ancestors by caring for the ancestors' shrine. Also, there was a strong belief that the body was a gift and it shouldn't be desecrated. So you shouldn't shave your head, for example. You should endeavor to be beautiful, to give um, homage to the family and honor to the family. And there was a, also a concern that Buddhist monks and nuns were parasites on the society. So the work ethic was very strong in China. In India, it was accepted that there were aesthetics. This was predated the Buddha. There were wandering naked aesthetics, as we heard yesterday. Many, many wise people wandering. Um, and that was valued in society. It was called the fifth stage of life to be born as an infant, to have your time of growing up and youth, and then to get married, to have a family, to establish a business. And then once those obligations were taken care of, then you could enter the fifth stage of life and undertake spiritual practice full-time. You could leave home with the blessing of your grown children and your wife and become a wandering ascetic supported by alms, by donations, in return for your teachings. And that's still true in India today. If you go to India, you see wandering aesthetics. But this was not the Chinese ideal. The Chinese ideal was someone who worked hard and um, took care of themselves by raising their food or having servants who raised their food and so on. So monks and nuns were considered idle and parasites on society. And it may be part of the reason that uh, monasteries and convents were given land, and then either the monks and nuns lived and worked, uh, worked on the grounds of the monasteries where they lived. So there are all kinds of stories from this era of, of uh, tilling the land, working the land. There's one story of uh, a monk who was, or a master, the master of the monastery, was out herding cows. And a monk came up to him and asked him while he was herding cows, 
So it's a very different ideal from India. And yet, especially in this time of great chaos and confusion, people were losing faith in their indigenous religion and were open to the ideas of Buddhism. Also, when you read the stories of the early Chinese nuns, there was a lot of difficulty in getting full ordination because there was an old rule from the time of the Buddha, which wasn't, could have been modified after his death, but wasn't, requiring that nuns be present, fully ordained nuns be present, in order to have a new nun ordained. And there weren't any fully ordained nuns in China. So a lot of the stories are of searching, of traveling great distances to find uh, somebody from uh, Western China or Eastern, Far Eastern Europe, a uh, missionary who could ordain women. So I'll read you a few of these stories. The, each culture has its own flavor of story. The Indian uh, stories in the transmission collections are usually quite down to earth. The Chinese stories are full of visions and mystical happenings and psychic abilities. So this is from a collection of, of 70 stories of biographies of Buddhist nuns from the 4th to the 6th centuries. They're very lovely little stories. And each one illustrates the difficulties that uh, various women had in undertaking the ordained life or undertaking a life of full-time practice. So this is Shi Hui Mu. The nun Hui Mu of the Song Dynasty was surnamed Fu. She entered the religious life at age 11, but accepted only the 10 rules of a novice in the monastic life. Often that was because you couldn't find anybody to give you the other monastic rules. She lived in Chu Ku village convent in Liang Commandary. When Hui Mu first read The Larger Perfection of Wisdom, she was able to chant from memory two chapters a day, a total of more than 20,000 words. Her teacher, Hui Chao, had built a scripture hall, and once, when Hui Mu went in to offer worship, she saw in the northwest corner of the room a Buddhist monk wearing the gold-colored robe of a Buddhist monastic, but his feet were not touching the ground. Another time, when Hui Mu, in the middle of the night, was lying down and memorizing scriptures, she had a dream in which she traveled to the west, where she saw a pool filled with lotus blossoms, and sitting each Inside each lotus was a person who had been born there. One large flower, however, was empty. Hui Mu, in her dream, wanting to climb up onto the flower, grabbed hold of it with all her strength, but without realizing what she was doing, also began to chant scripture in a loud voice. Because her mother, hearing the chanting, thought that Hui Mu was having a nightmare, she woke her daughter up. Hui Mu's mother was very old, and because she had lost all her teeth, Hui Mu always thoroughly chewed her mother's food first, so that her mother could eat. So there, there are two transgressions here of monastic life. One is eating meat, because your parents would probably still be eating meat. Being a vegetarian was considered very strange and eventually honorable. 
And many of the Chinese monasteries today still have um, placards outside on the gates, on the entrance gates, saying uh, no alcohol, no meat, no eggs, no onions, and no garlic are eaten here. And that's considered extremely difficult to do and so very virtuous. And then it has also connotations in Ayurvedic medicine and so on. So the second transgression is described here. Doing this, however, chewing her mother's food for her, meant that Huimu had to eat afternoon as well as before, thereby transgressing the monastic rule of not eating after midday. For that reason, even though Huimu had grown up and come of age to be able to accept the full obligation of monastic life, she did not do so. After her mother died, Huimu herself cleaned and prepared the ground for the placing of the ceremonial platform used for receiving the monastic rules, and she asked her teacher to bestow them. Suddenly, the space around the platform glowed with dazzling light, all a golden color. Huimu looked towards the southwest where she saw a heavenly being who wore a trimmed robe of russet gold color. He seemed closer and now far away, but when she sought after him, he had disappeared. The extraordinary things that happened to her she kept secret, but when her elder brother became a monk, he heard rumors and wanted to find out for sure. So he tricked her, saying, and this was a common thing that was said to women who wanted to ordain, you have been living the religious life many years now, but with no results. Therefore, you might as well let your hair grow and become a wife. When Huimu heard this, she felt great dread and thought she should tell the truth about everything. So she gave a rough description of what she had seen. When the Nang, Ching Cheng, heard of her way and virtue, she went to Huimu for the purpose of becoming well acquainted with her, the more easily to ask about the unusual phenomenon Huimu had experienced. And Huimu told her everything in detail. Later, Huimu and her companions in religion were worshiping the endless life Buddha, Amitabha, because Huimu did not get up after a prostration, the others thought she had fallen asleep. Someone kicked her and asked, but Huimu said nothing at all. When Ching Chen again begged and entreated her, Huimu said, While I was prostrate on the ground, worshipping the Buddha, I had a vision of going to the Western Paradise and seeing Amida Buddha, who was explaining the smaller perfection of wisdom to me. Well, that's a sutra. He had already gone as far as the fourth chapter when, to my very deep regret, I was kicked awake. <laughs> so her mother woke her from a wonderful dream, and then her, the other nuns woke her from being taught the meaning of the smaller perfection of wisdom. So I'll read you parts of two more stories. This is number 28. Ching Chen. Ching Chen, meaning measure of quietude of Bamboo Grove Convent, north of the capital on the south bank of the Huai River. Ching Chen's secular name was Liu. Her given name was Sheng. Her family was originally from Chao, Commandry. So they, they give these, just at the, as, as when we're hearing a recitation of what the Buddha said, they give the details of where it was. Besides Ching Chen's stringent practice of the monastic rule, she was also able to chant 450,000 words of scripture. 
The mountain grove next to the convent had no clamor or distractions, and in that fine location, Ching Chen's mind roamed in the silence of meditation, cutting off forever worldly corruption and trouble. Once a man lost an ox and went searching for it. By nightfall, he had come to the mountain, where she was meditating, where he saw the bright glare of firelight in the convent grove, but when he approached it, the light disappeared. A tiger often followed Ching Chen in her comings and goings, and when she sat in meditation, the tiger settled down nearby. If one of the nuns in the convent did not make a timely confession of an offense that she had committed against the rules, the tiger would be angry, but after she confessed, the tiger would be pleased. You see the tiger smiling. <laughs> Later, when Cheng Chen came out for a brief while from her seclusion on the mountain, on the way she encountered a woman from the north. They greeted one another without engaging in the usual formalities and were as pleased and happy as old friends. And then it tells who this woman was. Hmm? The, this woman's character was such that she particularly liked the Buddhist teachings. She had heard that in the south the way was flourishing. And when she was able to get across the frontier, she went as a refugee to this territory where she became a nun. So she was from the north, which was at that time ruled by barbarians. Together with Ching Chen, Chiu Wang Chiang led an austere life in the convent. Neither of the two women would eat millet or rice, but instead ate only sesame and mountain thistles. Their reputation for strict asceticism became known in the capital of the northern barbarians, who called the women sages and from afar summoned them with greetings of welcome. So they were ordered to come to the north by the ruling barbarians. The two women, however, did not like the frontier region, and thereby, therefore they proceeded to besmirch their own reputation by being, as Confucius recommended, quote, bold in action while conciliatory in speech. When in a way where the way, where in a country where the way does not prevail. So Confucius had recommended being bold in action while conciliatory in speech. If you're in a country where the way does not prevail, the barbarian host had prepared for them a meal of fine delicacies, which the women immediately gobbled right down, paying no attention to manners. Because of this, the ruler lost his former respect for them and detained them no longer. Jing Chen and Wang Chiang happily returned to their convent. <coughs> Jing Chen was 93 years old, free from any malady when she died. So there are many examples of women tricking, tricking people to get out of difficult situations or threatening to um, commit suicide by burning themselves if, they, if their family won't allow them to be ordained. So this is just a bit <clears throat> about a woman who was very old when she ordained. In the 14th year of the Wanxia reign, 437, Fa Xing, who was talented, intelligent, and very quick to understand everything, became a nun at the age of 70 in establishing Blessings Convent in the capital city. She had sojourned there in her old age, but even though once again the imperial capital was peaceful and prosperous, she still longed for her old home. Only by delving deep into the mysteries of Buddhism was she able to leave behind sorrow and forget 
old age. So those are some of the many lovely stories of early Buddhist women in China. Now we skip to Moshan Ni Liaoran. Ni means woman or nun. Nun. Moshan Ni Liaoran lived from approximately 800 to 870. So we've gone forward about six centuries here. And she has the distinction of being the only woman ancestor in the Chinese records of the transmission of the lamp. She studied under Master Gao Yan Da Yu. Da Yu was a Dorma cousin of hers, and he had studied with Linchi, with Rinzai, the founder of the Rinzai school of Buddhism, of Zen. So she was a second Dharma cousin uh, because um, Master Gao Yan Da Yu had also uh, studied under um, Daoyan Dayu. So they were th- both of them were third in line uh, under Matsu. And many um, teachers and other notables came to hear her teach. And one of them was Venerable Guan Qi Jiang. So I'll read you his the story of his encounter with Mo Shan Liaoran. Venerable Guangxi Jian came during his wanderings to Mo Mountain in Yunjiao and began by saying to the nun, Liaoran of Moshan, if it is mutually acceptable because the teacher is not lacking, then I will stay. If not, I will push over the Chan seat. So that would be somebody like somebody coming to the door and saying, well, I'll stay here if the teaching is good, and if not, I'm just going to knock over the teaching seat. So he entered the Dharma Hall, and Lao uh, Moshan Liaoran, hearing, hearing that this person had come, and this is what they were saying, sent the attendant to ask him, uh, for what purpose is this elder come to this mountain? And Chiang replied, for the Buddha Dharma. Then Moshan Liaoran went to the teaching seat in the, in the uh, greeting hall, in the audience hall, and sat down, and Chiang came in to formally greet her. Moshan Liaoran asked, From what place did you come today? And Chiang said, From the crossroads. And Moshan Liaoran said, Well, why don't you remove your hat? So the monks wore a big hat to shade themselves from the sun, protect themselves from the sun. Why don't you remove your hat? 
And in one version it says that John hesitated for a while and then finally removed his hat. And one of the comments, later comments is, the battle begins here. The battle begins here. So Moshan Liaron says, why conceal this? John had no reply. But he started bowing to her, and then he asked her, what is Mo Mountain like? So she's named after the mountain where she teaches, which is Mo Mountain. So that's Moshan, Liaron. And Mo means the tip or the very top. So he's asking a Zen question. What is Mo Mountain like? And she replied, the peak is not exposed. And John said, what about the master of Mo Mountain? And she said, without characteristics of male or female. And then John shouted, why not a further transformation? And Moshan the Aran said, being neither spiritual nor demonic, transform into what? Thereupon, Xian submitted respectfully. So this is a very interesting dialogue. The Guishan arrives. We have many guests who arrive here without notice, often on their way to the coast in the summer. People pull up, some pull up, cruise through the parking lot, and then disappear, even though we're outside waving. It's a little scary. We've had some people say they came, came that way, cruised through the parking lot three times before they summoned up enough nerve to actually park and come in. In China, it was probably much more common for people to arrive without notice because there were no telephones. And travel was very unreliable, so you didn't really know when you were going to arrive. And some monks traveled around intentionally surprising other masters to test the other masters' understanding and also to sharpen their own understanding. How can I help you is the question we ask when people arrive unexpectedly. How can I help you? And it's a way of uncovering a person's intentions. And then we know at what level to address their needs. Do you want to see if we're demons? Well, I'm sure there are people around, Klatsk and I, who still believe that we're troublesome people, disturbing people. Do you want to see if we're demons? So take a look. We'll engage you in ordinary conversation. Do you want a tour? Are you curious to see how we live and what our life is like? Yes, we have a kitchen. Yes, we have bathrooms and showers, just like you. Do you want a brochure? Do you want to practice? Do you want to deepen your understanding? Do you want to show off your understanding? That kind of person comes too. Comes in to challenge our understanding, which is very funny. So that simple question, why are you here? How can I help you? 
can uncover a whole layer, many layers of reasons that people come, or ostensible reasons that people come. Often in beginning instruction, you ask people, oh, tell me, tell, you what, tell us why you came here today. And they'll tell you something, often superficial, but you can sense something underneath. And sometimes when you approach those people later, after they've begun to meditate, and say, what, why did you come tonight? It just happened to me a few months ago, a few weeks ago, actually. Somebody had, I don't know, a serious difficulty in their life that brought them back after several years. There is a reason, but we don't always know the reason that we come to this practice, why this practice has attached its fish hook in our gut and pulled us here. But we're very honored in this session to have a whole row of fully transmitted teachers. We're very honored. This is very admirable. I often question at teachers' meetings, who, who are your teachers? I ask the other teachers, who are your teachers? Very few will say, oh, this is my teacher. They'll say, well, the, the Sangha is my teacher. Well, yes, that's true. Of course, in daily events in the Sangha, especially if you give Sangha permission to give you feedback, the Sangha will teach you, but you are still in a position of power over the Sangha, even if they pay you, even if they don't pay you. They have come to you for something more important than money. They have come to you for some kind of wealth beyond wealth. This practice depends on travel, a certain kind of travel, as Guishon was doing. Traveling over and over again to a place of vulnerability and don't know awareness. Don't know awareness. Where the self is completely withdrawn. It has many names. The dark cave is one. Remember Sita, the old woman, the Buddhist nun, in the time of the Buddha, who said, Though I am thin, sick, and I lean on a stick, I have climbed Vulture Peak. Robe thrown down, bowl turned over, leaned on a rock. Then great darkness opened. What is she talking about? What did she climb with ardent effort? Robe thrown down, what was cast aside? Bowl turned over, the overturning of what? What is emptied out? Leaned on a rock. What is there to lean on when you're old, tired, and barely able to walk? When most of your life has been discarded? And what is the great darkness that we so passionately desire to open, that we so passionately desire to open and swallow us up and yet so fervently fear will open? 
once that great darkness has opened and swallowed you up and you've returned to life again. Then you understand Ayakema's saying, as she almost died, it's an extremely pleasant experience. It's just letting go and disappearing. And it's very nice. Are we willing to disappear now? To really let go? We will disappear 250 years. Probably not a single one of us will have a name that's remembered. Possessions completely dismantled, dispersed. dust. What remains after we've entered that great darkness? Problem with being a teacher is that we get put in that place of, I do know. And we can begin, even subtly, to begin that we do know. To teach Dharma requires a mixture. It's this interesting mixture, this tension of opposites is characteristic of Zen. It requires a mixture of arrogance. Well, yes, I'm entitled to walk all over the Dharma with muddy boots. Well, yes, that, that was a pretty good Dharma talk. A mixture of arrogance and humility. Complete submission. I have no right to teach anyone anything. My understanding is completely insufficient. There's not enough water in the Columbia River to wash my muddy words out of your ears. So teachers need to have teachers. We all need someone we're accountable to, whose instructions we take in and work, work with even when those instructions are hard to follow. Someone who can watch us arrogance can encourage us when we become too humble and reluctant. I, I love the, the games my teacher plays with me. When I first started working on koans with Shoto Haradaroshi, he was very dismissive. He would essentially say in Japanese, well, it's not terrible. (laughs) Koan study is very frustrating because you're put down again and again and again. So you have to keep digging and digging into the koan, digging into your experience, revealing it in the koan. So for many years, he was very dismissive. And then he switched And now he's full of praise, which is kind of sickening. But it's all a test. It's a test of praise and blame. It's a test of not just equanimity, but steadiness. Steadiness in practice. Not to be moved or pulled about. 
So when Guishan arrives, Mo, uh, first Moshan checks on his intention. So she sends her attendant out, and, and the attendant says, well, well, how can I help you? What are you here for? And he says, for the Buddha Dharma. So then Moshan the Aran says, okay, then I'll meet him. That's what he's here for. And then she asks him in the, in the hall after she ascends the high seat and he comes in. He comes in to formally greet her. Where did you come from? So there are levels of where we come from. There, there are many answers. I come from a sperm and an egg. I don't know where I come from. But this is a very sincere question, and it requires a sincere answer, and he gives it from the crossroads. What is he saying? I come from the crossroads. What does that mean in your life, crossroads? Why is he there? What is he looking for as he's wandering around, as he wanders into this monastery? And then she says, well, why, why conceal that? Why conceal that? Why conceal it? Why admit it? So then she says, why don't you take off your hat? And then, after a while, he does. So all of these, there's, you can sense tremendous energy in the room in this exchange, even when nothing's being said. So then, he bows to her. But then he says, well, what is Mo Mountain like? So they're playing with each other, playing with the Dharma. It's a lovely, lovely story. So, well, what, did it, what is Mo Mountain like? What's it like to sit here? And then she says, uh, well, this peak is not exposed. And then he says, well, what about the master of Mo Mountain? And she says, without characteristics of male or female. Without characteristics of male or female. So someone once asked me years and years ago, they said in India, it's believed that you have to become a man to become enlightened. What, what do you believe in Zen? And they said, well, we believe that you have to become fully a man, fully a woman, fully both, and fully neither. Yesterday, Hogan gave a very cute story of Miss Bodhi and Empress Wu. Did you notice a difference when you heard the story with two female characters? A difference in your perception of what was going on? Or how the dialogue might have sounded? Interesting, huh? 
So that's a very interesting exercise to do, to change some of these koans into women without having to dig for koans that actually involve known women. Change them and see what happens. Beyond male and female. And then Bichon shouts, why not a further transformation? Well, what is further? What is that further beyond male and female? What is that further transformation? Hakuin Senji's Dharma transmitted student talks about further study beyond enlightenment. How long does that go on? Oh no. I thought enlightenment was the end. I thought I'd be finished. Like, oh yeah, okay, accomplished that. What's next? Oh, bungee jumping. Okay. (laughs) So then she says, being neither spiritual nor demonic, transform into what? So that's a very interesting answer, too. What does it mean? Being neither spiritual and demonic, transform into what? Being both spiritual and demonic, transform into what? Thereupon, Bishan submitted respectfully, staying and working as the head gardener for three years and studying with her. And later, Guishan, Guanxi Jian said, I received half a ladle at Father Linji's place, his original teacher, his root teacher, Rinzai, and half a ladle at Mother Moshan's. Since I took that drink, I've never been thirsty. Since I took that drink, I've never been thirsty. We have a few more records of Dialogues with Moshan Liaoran. This is one. A monk came to visit, and Ron said, very tattered rags. And the monk replied, even if that were the case, it's still a son of a lion. And then Moshan said, well, if it's a son of a lion, why be ridden around by Manjusri? Manjusri rides on a lion. So what is riding us around? And the monk had no reply. And this other little dialogue, which is very sweet. A monk asked, what is the heart of the ancient Buddhas like? And Ron answered, the world falling into ruins. And the monk asked, why the world falling into ruins? And Ron answered, it certainly does not have my body. The heart of the Buddha. What is the heart of the ancient Buddha? The world falling into ruins. How does that apply to us today? To this world that we're living in now. The heart of Buddha nature is to fall into ruins? 
Is that what it means? At the heart of Buddha nature, of discovering our Buddha nature is to fall into ruins? Or does it mean falling into ruins is exactly Buddha nature? The world falling into ruins is exactly the manifestation of Buddha nature. Every instance, every instant and instance of all of the complications of the world that disappoint us and distress us, is that exactly the ancient Buddha? And when she says, it certainly does not have my body, what does she mean? What anxieties for the world capture your mind? Make it anxious, stress your body. Is that what she means? This is a kind of koan that has to be taken deeply into our life. This practice, this very practice that we're doing in this hall, this simple practice of sitting still and clearing the mind over and over, clearing the mind, sitting still, expanding the mind, has sustained men and women for over 2,560 years. It carries the same power today. It is unaffected by political ups and downs. It has survived the journey across the Gobi Desert to China, across the treacherous waters to Japan, and now to us. It has adapted but at its heart remain true. That is our mandate, our vow to keep it true. It has remained able to help us see clearly the source of our suffering and to heal it. It is the ultimate medicine. And yet it has its own time and way of healing which we have to respect. We just have to get out of the way. Its essence is completely unprejudiced. Age, race, gender, cultural trappings or cultural adaptations do not matter. The treasure house is wide open to everyone. The teacher can cajole entice, bribe, push, plead, and kick you in the butt. But the teacher cannot do this practice for you. This is your practice. Please own it fully. These women faced very difficult times, and they had great determination great optimism, great faith, great vow. To open the treasure chest within you, you only have to sit long and soak in stillness, silence, peace, and essential goodness. And that stillness That silence, that peace, that essential goodness is you, is your own being. Don't let it be covered up. 
You have the power to uncover it, but it takes hard work until it doesn't anymore. Please practice well. So we're now going to do uh, outside walking meditation because we're not doing Sanzen this afternoon or tonight. So if you uh, would, as we take this, we'll do a little, just a short kin in here and then maybe no kin in here and go and get some shoes and jacket. You won't be tromping through the mud, but you'll be walking on paths. Uh, but you'll need a jacket. You can also take a, a zendo blanket as long as you keep it on your shoulders. The pace will be slow. It'll be about 20, 25 minutes, something like that. There may be a pause to do some standing meditation, but not a long pause. So every, everyone, please participate and refresh yourself by doing a long walking meditation. Thank you. Thank you.